Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Howdy y'all and welcome to Turned Out of Punk Splits episode number 10. And what a monstrous one we have for the special 10th episode from the band, the Sex Pistols and the Rich Kids, Glenn Matlock. And joining me for this conversation is my mentor, my pal, my hero, John Worcester. That's right, John returns to the show. This is a really fun conversation. John is a a music scholar beyond reproach and someone that, uh, you know, I knew when, as soon as I had Glenn come back say he wants to come back on the show, I'm like, I know the perfect person for this splits episode, because as John says, this is something he's been preparing for his whole life. Kind of an all-star rhythm section too. Like if I was putting together a fantasy punk band, baseball type team, you couldn't do, uh, too much better than having John Worcester and Glenn Matlock, holding it down in the rhythm department. But uh, Glenn Matlock, of course, has got a brand new record. And if you think Glenn is limited to sort of the Sex Pistols moment, you clearly have not paid attention to this incredible career and the Rich Kids and Spectres. And listen to Glenn's first episode. We talk a lot about kind of the post-Sex Pistols stuff that he did. And anyway, just like that, he's got a brand new record, which will be dropping on April 28th. And you can uh, find out more information at glennmatlock.co.uk and check out this ship when it drops because this guy, Glenn Matlock, he can write a song. You know, he's got he's got some uh, chops in that department, that's for sure. And speaking of chops, when it comes to the drums, you can't get too much more uh, uh, chop-filled. Not choppy, chop-filled than John Worser, who is currently on tour with the band The Mountain Goats. And you can find out more information at mountain-goats.com. And most of those shows that they look like they've got coming up are, are pretty low on tickets. So head on over there and get tickets immediately. And if you can't make it out to see John Worcester live doing his thing on the drums, you can always check out The Best Show, one of the greatest podcasts, radio shows, whatever, of all time. John and Tom Sharpling on that show are the most consistent comedy duo ever, in my opinion. And you can hear John on that show and uh, and and check out all the hilarious things John's done. He's appeared on the show many times as John Worcester and then a couple times in character. So go back through the archives and, and bask in the glory of the fact that John Worcester is a part of our little family over here at Turned Out a Punk. So thank you to John. Thank you to Glenn for coming on this show. Check out and support everything these two people do. And and that's it. This is split, so I don't do these super long uh, run-on intros. Uh, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, turnoutapunk.com. If you want to find me on social media, at Left for Damien, there's Turned Out a Punk Instagram pages, Facebook pages, YouTube pages, TikTok pages, all that, all that stuff. And there's videos up there and whatnot and... The like. So check out that stuff. Find me on Twitter or Instagram myself at Letford Damien. And that is it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy 
John Worcester and Glenn Matlock on Turned Out of Punk Splits. Glenn, welcome back to the show. Hello, Damien. How are you doing? All right. It's it's a thrill to have you back here. Uh, we are joined, of course, by my mentor in a lot of ways, John Worcester. And uh, John and I, as I told you off the top, are both huge fans. And I think, John, you have done a little bit of research for this interview as well. Uh-oh. My my whole life has been research for this interview. <laughs> I I I told I told Damien yesterday I I have a vivid memory of buying I was a teenage sex pistol while I was on my first ever tour um and it was in Columbus, Ohio at the student bookstore and I just spent the entire rest of the tour just just oh, deva- oh, okay. just you, devouring it. So, yes. <laughs> Great. There you go. I've, I've reached the hallowed halls of academia. And... That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, I was thinking today, you've got to be one of the most covered artists of all time, right? Like pretty vacant, obviously, and, and just everything you've done with the pistols, like every punk band covers those songs. It's like kind of like part of the starter pack. Um, do you know what? I didn't even consider that, actually. Yeah, maybe. Um, uh I thought it was something like my way or something like that, but perhaps I'm right up there with my way, you know. Well, I've definitely never seen a band cover my way at an all ages show that I play, but I've definitely seen many a band cover a pistol song. All right, good. Okay. Um, I'll take your word for it. um, Yeah. Glenn, I wanted to say um, your, your career has had such a cool trajectory. Um, as Damien said, have, having written or co-written some of the most iconic songs of of our times. And you also went on to be the the go-to bassist for a lot of, you know, I- iconic bands over the years. Blondie, who you're playing with now, Iggy, uh, Primal Scream, uh, The Faces. What yeah. what brings you the the greater satisfaction? writing a great song like ghost of princes and towers or coming off stage at whatever the o2 arena with blondie or someone or, or are no, they different um, things I, I like them both equally they're kind of two sides to the same coin of music i see writing a song and performing my own stuff is my art and I see, but it don't sound very rock and rollers. But I see being a bass player is a bit like being a good carpenter or a plumber, you know. And there's an artistry involved in that, and that's what bass playing is. And I enjoy doing it. But if people says, you know, when you get the, the plumber around your house because something's gone wrong, can you fix that, mate? And you go, well, yeah, but it's going to cost you. You know, <laughs> you know, there's that sort of aspect to it. But I, I like playing bass. It's a, it's a it's a particular skill that many lead guitarists think they can put the bass on it, but they can't. And I also know when I bass is really my second instrument. I'm a, a rhythm guitarist, but I would never try and put lead guitar all over a song because I can't. I'd always get someone in who can do it properly, you know. Um, yeah. And that then, you know, it takes the song off in a different direction, which is, is kind of good. I mean, yeah, it's good being known as a sideman, but now it's taken me a long time. I wrote those songs a long time ago, the ones you quoted, but I've also written many, many more songs that I think are pretty good. Head I on a stick. I, Head on. Well, well, yeah, and stuff in between. My last yep. album, the album before that, and all the albums I put out, it's got some good stuff on it. And I think because I wrote that other stuff back there, which became famous, I think I should be allowed to be the arbiter of the fact that I think I write some good songs every now and then. Not always, (laughs) but they're always all right. And then every now and then there's a really good one. But they get a bit lost. And so my driving force is to... I don't mind if people don't like my stuff. It's when they don't hear I've got stuff out that's very galling, you know. But now I've got got a chance to readdress that, I think. The Head on a Stick song is kind of to do what's been going on with England over over Brexit. You don't really know so much about that and why should you, but it's quite a big deal thing. But it's also part 
of a massive lurch to the right in politics here, but it's also echoed across the Western world, you know, and Trump and the, the Republican Party in America all feed into that. And even your guys, not so squeaky clean, you know. It's oh, all to do with that somehow. So I'm kind of kicking against that. And I think people should be made aware of it. I think people are beginning to say it a little bit. And I think there should be consequences for these people. And they should be made to pay a price for their kind of disregard for most people, basically. Citizen Matlock, right on, right, man. Right, right. <laughs> But, you know, but it's, it's something that, you know, people say, as you get older, you get, more, you get a bit more concerned. But I don't. I can't see how anybody can. There's an injustice. Yeah. And I can't see as an artist how you can be oblivious to it. You know, it's things around you that are plainly wrong. And they seep into your psyche by almost osmosis or rising damp. You know, up your trouser leg and up into your your brain think, telling you that there's something not right somewhere. Now, I'm not Che Guevara or Tarek Ali or, or Jerry Rubin, the leader of the Yippies, but I am socially aware somehow, you know. So I, I want to comment on it. And this head on the stick thing over here, I did a news programme the other day. I just said what was on my mind. People have gone bonkers about it. I think, you know, finally somebody's talking about the elephant in the room. What's the reaction been? It's, it's been really good. Now, whether that means I'm going to be number one in England, I doubt it. But, it, you know, it might make more people tune into what I'm doing now and more people come to gigs and things. And I'm just trying to carve out a more solid niche for myself in my declining years than I've had for a while with my material, you know. But on the other end, I can afford to do that. Not financially although it does help but you know then i'm going to go and do really big shows with blondie or somebody else who called me up yeah so one thing kind of balances yeah. it's a it's a seesaw you know um do you have seesaws in canada absolutely well i was going to say <laughs> what you said is exactly it's it's a global problem right now like i think brexit was the first rearing of this ugly head that you as you said this sort of shift to the right and use of social media controlling people's opinions or populism and all these sorts of things like it's it's fascinating to kind of watch this unfold and this is something that you know weirdly punk has always kind of had in the conversation it seems oh well, like. yeah but you know, you know i agree with you but the funny thing is is when i came out vehemently against brexit before the vote and there's quite a few people who wrote to me on facebook and social media going what are you going on about glenn don't you realize that the 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 new right is the new left. And I think, <laughs> what the earth are you on about? And they've been mugged into believing it. And yet, if you followed a few of their timelines, they're all public image friends. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Work that one out. Right. <laughs> yeah, not a lot of rich kid fans on that uh, unfortunate no. side of the no. fence. No, you know, but there well, you go. You brought up the yippies there, and I was wondering, like, Early on, was there any sort of like involvement? Because the Yippies were so involved in American punk rock, or, or certainly the second wave American hardcore stuff, from right. managing different bands or running venues that different bands played. Was there any sort of like political involvement in or push for political involvement in the first wave of punk stuff that was happening? Only in a sort of um, we're so divorced from tying the line. It could be deemed to be. It, we were so apolitical that we was political. You know, um, Mount McLaren was our manager. I, when I used to work for him, and I used to measure people up for teddy boy suits. I'm sure you know what they are, and that's the darling through to the tailor. And of course, Malcolm never had an alphabetical or dress book. It was just a load of numbers written down, so you had to scan through. And the numbers he had, you know, it was like kind of. Yoko Ono, um, IT, which is International Times, which was a, you know, Oz, you know, Oz newspaper, the guys from that who were very radical and the IRA and, you know, what is, who's this guy, you know? So <laughs> there was that kind of thing, but I never saw Malcolm on a march. Yeah, yeah. 
That's funny you bring up Oz magazine because my dad used to do illustrations for Oz and did an illustration. Oh, cool. Yeah, he, he, did, uh, he was he was born in Portsmouth, but did went to art college in Leicester and kind of booked shows in Leicester for years, and right. did an illustration of the guy who ran the Process Church, and they they went looking for him. So that's when he decided to come to Canada. So it really oh, Oz magazine led right. to to me being born. I think ultimately. Right. All right. But I mean, all that stuff is um you know that was a little bit before my time and when i was about 14 one of my mates oldest brother had a, a a copy of the there was a teenage judge that came out and it was all drawings of girls with no clothes on and jermaine Greer with her legs behind her ears you know it's like whoa look at that kind of thing that was my dealings with it but i'm aware of the, of the sociological way one thing feeds in into another you know even in i'm a big fan of the faces which is no secret and um there's a song called that's all you need and one of the lines goes um you know late last night reading my underground press you know and it's rod stewart singing about the underground press so you know it's all in there somehow and i'm sure john was aware of that with some of the, the lyrics that he wrote um where he's at now, I don't quite understand or know. Um, but I'm, I'm just doing my thing. So I kind of try and take all of that on board and track my path through things. But yeah, I, it's like I'm just trying to point out that people shouldn't let themselves be hoodwinked. hoodwinked. Yeah. Well, and you know, and you brought up something interesting earlier that comes up time and time again on the podcast with with people that have done significant works when they were young people, and it's just how their lives get kind of canonized. And I think you're more so than most of the people that have been on the show that have talked about this thing kind of happening. Where, as you said off the top, like you wrote these songs how many years ago now, and they're still kind of brought up constantly to the point where it's almost become mythology. Like it's almost like a modern day religion to a lot of people, like following in the footsteps set forth. Yeah, maybe. And I, I mean, I say this, and, but you know, you write a song and it means something to you, but it can, songs are a bit like the Bible, you know, people read into them what they want to read into them. But they also become out, almost out of your hands. They almost become like folk songs. They don't sound like folk songs, but it's, it's that kind of thing, and yeah, it's it's a bit weird. But I've I've never known any different, and I don't see that aspect of things changing in my lifetime. At this thing, maybe it's not such a bad thing anyway. You know, right? Um, this leads to a question I had when you when the Pistols got got back in '96. Did you still feel a connection to the to that music to those songs? Was it the, yeah. the, the same connection you had then, or or was it a new, a new view of it? I was older, but I was just as proud of those songs. It was also quite exciting. I mean, when I played with the band first time around, I think this pretty much goes for everybody in the band. Probably the biggest crowd we had was like about four hundred and fifty people. Right, right. You know, yeah. and then you're suddenly doing a world tour and playing in front of. 10, 20, 30,000 people, you know, with a big rig and proper roadies and everything in tune when you go on. And yes, it wasn't the same that we weren't on the front page. Well, we were on the front page of the paper, but not for the same reason. Yeah. But you're playing your music and you, the people are digging that and they're, they're powerful songs and they're powerful players. Not bad for a three piece band with a, you know, a singer who's a bit different. Um, how can we explain it? But it was a buzz, man. You know. Well, what was that first rehearsal like? The, the the four of you in the in the in the room with instruments for the first time since your well, last. Do you know? Do you know what? I'm going to let you into a little trade secret here, but don't tell anybody. We had our first rehearsal, and we bought this place called Mates in the Valley in Los Angeles because we rehearsed over there because Steve and John okay. living there. And we turned up. And it was really hot, and the air conditioner had broken down. John turned up with a six-pack of beer. I haven't been drinking for a while. Steve wasn't. Paul wasn't that interested. And John wouldn't sing. He, he wouldn't sing. And I don't know why. Shy. 
acting up to the camera, but there wasn't the camera. And Stephen Paul got fed up. So they left. And I thought, I'm going to try and make amends with John a little bit now. So I hung around. And I picked up Steve's guitar. And me and him went, then went through the set. Just, just me and him. Wow. And outside, there were a couple of guys who were very hard Sex Pistols fans. And they must have probably thought that Steve's guitar's got playing has gone downhill. But it was me. <laughs> <laughs> but then, then the next day, it was fine. But I think John needed, you know... A little footstool to put his foot in the stirrup to get back on the horse, you know. Right. Oh, that's wild. That's wild. And, but, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not taking the mickey out of it. No. It was a big deal thing, you know, and sometimes you need a little bit of help. Yeah. Really. Absolutely. And there's the story of the two of you being being sent off to write the song submission. And it, 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 it seemed well, like no, that. No, was... no, we, we, we wasn't sent off. Again, what happened was. We had a rehearsal, and Stephen Paul didn't turn up. You know, oh, they always okay. found better things to do. Right. So me <laughs> and John waited and waited, and then we went over the pub, and then they didn't turn up. So we rewrote the song submission together and just traded line by line. And I, then I went home and worked out some calls to go with it. Basically, nicking off out, hello, I love you. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell anybody. <laughs> and then when we asked the next time, I said, look, we got me and John come up with this idea, you know, and then we worked out as a band and it changed okay. a little bit, as it always happens. Yeah. But I, I like to think I kind of got my way. You know what? The very last gig we did with the Sex Pistols, we played a place in Spain, and um, Vittoria in Spain, and Ray Davis was on the bill. And his dressing room was next door to us. So I knocked on the door. And he said, come in, I come in, he's, he's got his dinner there. And I went, oh, I just wanted to come and say He said, you're the bloke who wrote all the songs, aren't you? Right. And it it was like a big, I don't know, like a depot or something where they divided up the rooms with walls, but the walls didn't go right to the ceiling. Right. Right. So, right. and in the next room, I knew John was in there with his mate. I said, no, no, it was a collective consciousness. Ray Davis said to me, calm off it. He said, I used to bring a song into the kinks and we try it this way and that way and then we'd even have a fist fight about it. He said, but I always won. Ha, ha, ha. Somebody's got to be in charge. <laughs> oh, <damn it. laughs> it's, it's funny how that goes with collaboration and, and stuff like that. Like there's certain people, I think especially as a lead singer, like your instrument winds up being your ego. And I find this as, as a lead singer in a band, like you, you just wind up being so wounded all the time. And your band is really the people that takes the brunt of it. You know, like, even though these are the people that, you know, I'm saying this as a, as a lead singer who can't play any instruments, but like, well, there you the, go. That is the big difference. Yeah. Right? A pure lead singer. There's, there's singers who don't know which way around the guitar goes. And there's singers who play an instrument, you know, mm -hmm. and there's a big difference between Al Fuhrer and Joe Strummer, say, who played rhythm guitar. And I think that's, that's the key of it. I think once you play an instrument, you're part of the band. When you don't play an instrument, you're the bloke in front of the band. And there's an invisible wall between you. And all kinds of things can go through your head. And they probably think, because of this invisible wall, that you're all talking behind his back, but there's also an invisible wall, and you think that he thinks that you're, all you know, right. it's a <laughs> self perpetuating load of old. It, it, yes, yeah, it's, it's almost like you don't feel like you're really doing anything for the band, so you have to be the burden. You know, you're like, well, I, I don't really <laughs> play anything, so I have all to. Right, just... You can say that. I might go along with it, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying I would never say this to the people in my band. I would never admit this to them, but I'm happy to admit it to you here now. Yeah, but you know, on the other end, the sort of clips come up with the stones that I kind of like a bit, you know. And all that. But every now and then, you, you see Mick Jagger's doing a song. In fact, not long before we did this, uh, some little clip come up with them doing that song Doom and Gloom they wrote about lockdown. Right. But Mick Jagger's playing the guitar and now it looks wrong but at right. least he's trying to join in with the lads you know <laughs> uh, 
Well, that's the thing, right? Like once you go, you know, even you can you can learn an instrument, but once you're a pure lead singer in that band, you're forever a pure lead singer. You know, no matter how virtuoso you become with your instrument, you're always just going to be the guy with the mic. Yeah. Well, there you go. But I, I come from both. I've got both bits of it, you know. So perhaps I'm more taking the Joe Strummer approach, possibly. Right. All right, Glenn. Speaking of of guitar players, I think Damien asked me to participate in this because he knows I'll go for the deep minutia questions that that only turned out a punk listeners will will want to know about. So, with that in mind, 1979 Old Grey Whistle Test, Iggy Pop Band, you on bass, Klaus Kruger on drums, mm -hmm. uh, Iggy, Scott yeah. Thurston, yeah. a future heartbreaker. And on the other guitar, a man who looks like late 70s Bo Diddley down to the big cowboy hat. Jackie, Jackie Clark. Clark. I need to know everything about Jackie Clark. Well, I don't know much about Jack, Jackie Clark. I think he played with Ike and Tina Turner. He, I got the gig because he'd actually played bass on the New Values album that I got roped in to play bass on because he was going to play second guitar on the European tour. That's how I got the gig. He was a lovely, lovely guy, very talented, but also dig this. When we then did a tour of England, there was, he had a break somewhere at like services, a truck stop. And for some reason we were talking about running, right? And I'd actually run this place called White City for my school in 100 yards or yeah. 100 metres relay race, that, you know, representing my school. And I went back. And I said, I'll whack there. And he said, no, Glenn, you won't. I said, I'll whack there. He said, no, look, I'm going to give you a 10-yard start. Right. <laughs> so somebody wondered, yeah, maybe Scott first night. One, two, three, go. And we went. And, I, you know, I legged it. And he just came past me like Roadrunner, right? He was damn quick. And I think his act didn't even fall off. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> what was it like being on that tour with Iggy Pop? Like, I assume you were a fan of the Stooges by that point, right? Yeah. I mean, I was aware of them, and I, I, I liked them. My favorite Stooges album actually is, is Raw Power. Um, I don't know why, but it is. I just think it's a bit more... Colorful somehow. Um, kind of a controversial opinion too. I like. I think Rock Power is my favorite too. But like, I think a lot of people now would say Funhouse or, or, or self-titled. But I, Rock Power's got more of the. Songs I mean, they're all good, but I like them for different reasons. And I, I think maybe he found himself lyrically a bit more by then. But I, I don't know. Um, where are we going with this? What, what was the question? If you're How a fan of Iggy Pop and what it was like being on tour with him. Yeah. Um, well, the thing is, when we found the pistols, and even with the rich kids after that, nothing worked. Right? We had our mates were roadies and they were drunk and they didn't know which way a lead should go in. And it was all a bit amateur hour. And when I started playing with Iggy, he'd been touring for years and he had like a professional crew and a sound guy and a road manager and a lighting guy and everything was laid on. And it was proper. And, um, and it was the first time I'd been around Europe properly. And even, yeah, take this, when we were rehearsing, he realised that there was always somebody from the band missing who'd sloped off to go and get a drink down, the, you know, in the canteen or something like that. So he sent the roadie out to get a dustbin Fill it with ice, fill it with a bottle of Jack Daniels, bottle of vodka, beer, wine, purely to keep everybody in the room at the same time. But I thought to myself, how professional, because it worked, you know. So it's kind of funny, but Iggy, wild and crazy guy, um, on stage, James Osterberg during the day slowly turning into Iggy. Right. Before the show, um, well, it happens, you know. Um, nerves, he's got a show to do. Need a bit of this, need a bit of that to kind of carry it off. Um, it was an eye opener. You know? 
And I wish I kept playing with him more, but things happened. I got sidetracked and I didn't. But I would have liked to have done more. I think I think Iggy's kind of like America's greatest living poet, really. You know. Oh yeah. He's like the last one left, right? Like the, well, I guess Bob Dylan too, obviously. But I think well, like, you've got your Tom Tom Waits kind of thing. I think yeah, maybe Beck's in that kind of mold. What I was quite proud of it though was it, it was in I will say it euphemistically, but it was my brown owl days of drinking too much and mm. rocking and rolling a bit too much. But he pulled me over one day and he said to me, Glenn. You are out of order. You are out of order. The American people won't understand your behavior. As if you stop telling me. And I thought, yeah. <laughs> what was it like writing songs with him? Um, well, although there's a couple of co-writes, and there's, I think there's one song, you did one song of mine called Ambition. Yeah. Which I'm proud of. He's never really done anybody else's lyric unless it was a the standard kind of thing. Um, and there's a couple of other songs that were kind of half ideas. There was one song I had a working title called called Forget Me Not. It was just like scrambled eggs, you know. And he said, oh, I'll do that. And I said, no, you've got to change the words. But I said, look, it goes like this. And he went off and wrote some songs. We didn't really sit okay. and write songs together. And I've never, apart from submission, I've never really had that kind of relationship oh, okay you know that Leonard McCartney thing or Jagger Richards kind of thing which would have been good but on the other hand I, it takes me a long time to write a song and I'm in a world of my own and you can't be in a world of your own with somebody else sitting there right maybe so is that the way you approach- it don't mean you can not not share a riff and think oh that's a good idea if you go there but that's not writing a song writing a song is it's like writing a novel I think so when you're doing like a music project, obviously when you're not playing, you know, obviously with another band, but I mean, when you're coming to a band, are you coming in with fully formed ideas for what these songs are going to be? Like, you're, are you bringing that in, like in terms of the level of collaboration with everyone? Like with who? Like with your most recent, your solo record, let's say, or, or, well, you know. That's, 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 uh, no, that's me being little, little, I'd say, right, I've got these songs. I go like this um, and I'll show you how they go. But let's jam it up and, and let's feel how, um, where it's going. And, and then, then in, in between you all, you know, if something's working or something's not, then you go in the studio and the lead guitarist comes in and he wants to try all these ideas out. And you've got to painstakingly listen to him and say, oh, that's a good one. No, that's no good. And me and Earl in the studio. He's going, well, I'm learning a song. Well, you should have fucking learned it before that. Right, and I told you, I go, like, how about playing that? Well, no, no, well, I want to play this, but yeah, but that bit was really good, and the bit you're doing now is shit. Well, what about the solo? Well, do you know what, Earl? I suggest you play a good solo because if you don't, you're the one who look like a cunt, not me. <laughs> so, so we have quite a laugh, actually. <laughs> when I first met him, I was doing a little project with him and Clem Burt and this guy called, called Keenan Dusty. And he, he um, some, we were going to do a song and he said, what key is it in? And then Keenan, who'd written these songs, said, oh, it's an A. No, it's an B. So Earl gets his capo out and puts it on. I said, oh, are you? That's cheating. He said, you're going to be like that? I said, yes, I am. <laughs> and we got on fine after that. <laughs> Speaking of, of inter-band dynamics, I- I've always been curious about the um the conversations between you and midge and rusty and steve during the 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 prep for the second rich kids album that never happened when they were getting super into synth synth stuff what what was that like well you know we kind of done our thing and it was a bit of a backlash because we wasn't the sex pistols mark two and they did a side project for um with Steve Strange, which became right. Rugage, and it kind of took off. And it, to me, it was one silly hat too far. And mm-hmm. um, I wanted to rock and roll a bit more, and it kind of broke the band up, really, you know. Right. But we we had pretty much demoed the second album, and some, you know, on that song Ambition that Iggy does, that probably would have been on the, sec- the Rich Good second album, and maybe a couple of other things that went that way. And Steve New started writing some really good songs. 
um, I think it came out on Creation or something. It's just, it's not very good because they're all demos, but the songs are good. He wrote this great song called Point It to Your Head, which is fantastic. Um, and another one called Tomorrow Zero. And I kind of wish maybe we should have persisted with that. So I broke the band up. Okay. But then I was sitting at home thinking, what on earth am I going to do? And this is in the days before A, mobile phones, but probably before even um, answer machines. Mm. I thought, wouldn't it be great? If I had no idea what I was going to do. Wouldn't it be great if a phone rang? I'm not kidding you. Two minutes later, the phone rang. This bloke said, hi, is Glenn Matlock there? And I said, yes, who's that? And he said, well, you might know me. My name's Peter Davis. And I manage Iggy Pop when we're in town. We'd, we'd like to meet up and have a drink. I said, who's by? And they said, we are. And I said, all right, then. Wow. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. Amazing. That's so cool. Um, <clears throat> you went to Japan with uh, Johnny Thunders. Was that your first time going over to Japan? Yeah. Yeah, that was in um, 1985, I think. Yeah. I you know, I've forgotten all about that. Yeah, that was an eye-opener. What was um, he like? John, yeah, very shy, I think. Very shy again, a bit like Iggy had to turn into Johnny Thunders as the, the day went on before the show, right? Um, yeah, when he was good, he was great, when he was bad, he was horrid, okay. um, purely because of what had imbibed a little bit, um. But I think one thing misses about Johnny is not so much what he played. I remember going to a club called the Speakeasy, which was like an after-hours thing in London, you know, where all the rock stars would hang out. And, da, 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 and some band who were like jazz rock band called Kokomo were playing. And I was just oh, like, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it was all right, you know. I was hanging out at the bar, just sort of half listening, chatting, and all of a sudden, there was this guitar sound, right? And it, what's that? Yeah, that's not Cocoa. And everybody rushed from the bar. And Freddie King, who'd been playing in London, had got up with them. And his sound was just, you know, it wasn't particularly loud, although it stuck out when the guitarist they had. It was confident and loud and proud and really good. And Johnny had that. You know, he could play one note, and it's, you know, it's Johnny Thunders. Yeah. And, you know, there's loads of great guitarists, but they don't all sound like themselves. But he did. And that's kind of quite an achievement. And he wrote some some pretty good, heartfelt, simple songs, you know. Oh, yeah. Can't put your arms around a memory and, you know, stuff like that. What was it like um, hanging with those guys on the Anarchy Tour? Did you get close to them at all? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, Um they were cool, you know. They yeah. was up to their hijinks, which I was a bit naive about. I mean, right. they kind of intimated that they weren't so happy with Billy Rath and what would I be oh. like with him, you know. But I like Billy. I was in the Sex Pistols and kind of just as well. I didn't go down that route. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know. <laughs> but they were cool, you know. When they turned up on the Anarchy Tour, we thought we were going to get these long egg gits, you know. And they turned up, Johnny looked like the kind of Puerto Rican gangster. Right. Yeah, it was short run. Wow. And then they started playing, and they were so kind of cocksure and arrogant when they're playing. And most of the, I don't think the Pistols, because we've been doing stuff by them, but the Clash, you know, had a thing going. Damned, you know, it was all a bit rinky dink kind of thing. They, they were just cocksure and arrogant and great, right. you know. Wow. Yeah. It's wild to think that's only 10 years later that you're going to, well, I guess a little more than 10 years later, but like 10 years later that you're going to Japan with Johnny Thunders and how much the world of music had changed kind of in the wake of those 10 years versus the Anarchy Tour where everything's kind of starting, like that revolution that kind of kicks off and, you know, it keeps going and keeps changing things as it goes, but it's just amazing how... Well, right in what away. way? You mean like synthesizers coming in? And... Well, I think the synthesizer, but I mean like just like you're here you are in Japan where this music has spread to Japan and there's waves of bands that worship not just the Johnny Thunders, but the Sex Pistols that worship UK punk. There's a Japanese punk that's developed at that time too of its own, several different types of it. It's just fascinating how global this thing became quickly, how quickly this thing became global. Um. Yeah, I can't really 
disagree with that. Um, but I hadn't been there before, so I didn't know that he didn't have it before I got there. You know? <laughs> and, and you know what? The other thing, I, I was a, not the most kind of um, relaxed flyer, and I used to drink so much that most of it to get on a plane. I don't oh. now, I'm fine. But um, back then I was, and the, the sort of five or six days I was in Japan, I had just stonking hangover all the time I was there. I don't remember much of it. <laughs> and then it was by the time it finally cleared, it was time to get back on the plane and come home. <laughs> What, what was it like touring Japan? Like, was, was Johnny doing okay in terms of addiction things at that point? Or was it a good period? Or was it trying to find that stuff? Because, like, trying to find anything in Japan can be a harrowing experience in terms yeah, of... Yeah, I think he just got on with it. And I don't really know. You know, he did what he, he did. I did what I did. You meet up before the gig. And he's pretty on the case. I can't remember if they came or not, but both... Because Jerry Nolan was the drummer on that tour and all... I know definitely they came to Australia, we did a tour of Australia, but their girlfriends came with them and that kept them on the straight and narrow a bit. Maybe they did in Japan as well, I can't quite remember. I know we then did a tour of Spain and they didn't come and that was a whole different matter. And another thing, I was in Australia and my ex-missus lived there and in fact... Uh, I got we got divorced. We got there. And we decided to be friends and stuff, and wouldn't be kind of nice sometime in the future. That I got over to Australia to see her, and Johnny Thunders called me up. He said, "Hey, Glenn, you want to do some playing with me?" And I went, "Oh, I don't know, Johnny. I don't know, bad news, <laughs> you know." Where are you going? Australia. I went, "All right." <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. So anyway, so we did the tour, and then I stayed over for about a month in Perth. Oh. which is quite good because the America's Cup was on. I remember going down to Fremantle and looking at the boats before the racing started, so that kind of dates it. But and then Johnny called up and he said, hey, we got a tour. Oh, no, he wouldn't really go back with him. Um, and I was going to stay in Australia mm. longer, but then he called up and said, we got a a tour in um, Spain when I come back, when I'm all right then. But if I'd gone back with him at the end of the Australian tour, I said, well, which way are you flying? You know, you're going via Hong Kong or something. He said, said, no, we're going to Bangkok. Why don't you come with me? We'll get some really nice cheap suits made. And I thought, yeah, I'm not going to Bangkok with you, mate. I'll end up in in, in jail. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Rich kids toured Australia, right? No, we didn't. We, we We never really got out of England. We went to France a couple of times. And did something else, but no, it didn't quite go the way it was supposed to go. Yeah. Um sorry, go on, Mick Mick Ronson produced uh the Rich Kids album. Any 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 fun memories of him? Yeah, I mean it was great working with Mick. Again, it happened because of a phone call. He was friends with one of the guys, Pete Wormsley, who was managing us, he was a, also a tour manager. And the phone rang in the office, and I answered it. And this one went, oh, hello, is, uh, is Peter there? And I said, no, he's not here at the moment. Can I take a, a message? And he's, this voice, sort of North England accent, he went, it's Michael. And I went, it's not Michael Ronson, is it? And he went, yeah. And he said, he said, is that Glenn? And I said, yeah. I said, how do you know who I am? He said, well, well Peter's told me about you. And I said, well, we're looking for a producer and we're rehearsing tomorrow night. Do you want to come down? And he went, all right. And I don't think he was doing a lot of the time. And he came down. I went, I said, I'm bringing a guitar. And he did. And he got up and we did a couple of numbers. And we went down the pub and got sloshed together and got on great. And, you know, I was very friendly with Mick. And I met his family, who were lovely. And I'm still good friends with them today. Mick was a superlative musician. Um... But it was also quite funny and all. I remember being in the studio with him and he went, Oh, I wonder how it's going. He likes a bet, did me. I wonder how it's going. And I said, Well, you know, we've done that rhythm track. And then Midge is coming back a bit later on to do his double track vocal. And then I think Steve's going to do his guitar. He said, No, 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 I know that. I said, What then? He said, I've got Orson at 3 30. I wonder how it's going. <laughs> And the last time I saw Mick, you know, he got ill when the crowd was sort of rallied round and 
kind of keeping company a bit. And we went to Walthamstow, which is in northeast London, sort of quite a working class area where his sister lives. And we all went to the dog track, greyhound racing, and putting bets on the on the grounds. That's quite fun. Like, I didn't see much after that. So was glam much of an influence on you? I know obviously the faces were and, and sort of like the more pub rock stonesy type stuff too, but like where was glam and, and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I was as shocked as anybody else when Bowie come out and did um, Starman on, on, in fact, the first time everybody thinks he was on top of the first, top of the pops first, but it was actually a show called Lift Off with Aisha, who was this ah. Indian girl who ended up marrying Roy Wood from the move and then from body electric light orchestra and wizard. And he was on that first. I saw him that was like, wow, what's this all about? You know, and it was at that age when I was about 14, 15, starting to get hip to things. We had a pretty good show called the Old Grow Whistle Test, where you see early Roxy music, the New York Dolls a little bit later on, were on there. You know, and then actually I was going out with a girl back then. She invited me to go and see this guy, and I said, well, I've got football in the morning, I won't go. Um, never heard of him. Do you know who it was? Lou Reed. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, and then a little bit after that, I, I went, oh, right, and kind of got hit to the Velvet Underground. So that kind of aspect of glam was cool. There was also people like the tremolos getting in on the glam rock. Um bandwagon and you know you see the faces of bowie they look really cool and then you see the tremolos it probably had a hit record on top of the pops dressed up all glam rock but like right. the, they look like builders going to a fancy dress party <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and that, that, that's the thing you know some things are cool and some things aren't why are, right why are they and why are they not because you got it and you can carry it off what do you think of um, arthur brown I love Arthur Brown. And do you know what? Al Slick was playing with um, the New York Dolls at Alexandra Palace. And they were supporting Alice Cooper. And I met up with Al and we had lunch. And I drove him up to Alexandra Palace, which is right in the north of London. Went up there and the, he's kind of hanging around because um, the uh, Alice Cooper band hadn't finished sound checking yet. So we're in this big cavernous Victorian hall, just chatting, and the band's playing. You're going, what, what? I'm like, hang on a second. That's not an Alice Cooper song, what's that? They were playing fire, but they didn't, no, but they didn't have the organ, so I didn't recognise it at first. And I look around, there's Arthur Brown on the stage. I thought, what's he doing there? This is weird. Anyway, that kind of went on. And when Elle was on with New York Dolls, I was in the sort of slightly VIP bit right down the front of the stage. And there's a bloke in a red tracksuit and a red bobble hat dancing away. And it's Arthur Brown, right? So I'm chatting to Arthur Brown. I said, what are you doing? He said, you'll find out. And Alice Cooper did his set and he invited Arthur Brown on at the end of the set. Alice Cooper stood at the back, in, back of the stage doing backing vocals while Arthur Brown sang fire with the flaming Edgar. It was fantastic. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I was chatting to Arthur afterwards, and he, he was like just like a really nice bloke. And he was about 70 back then, and he sang great, you know, wow. really deep, strong voice. He's got a new record coming out this year, yeah. I follow him on Facebook or something, yeah. He's a, he's a bit of a boy, yeah, yeah. A, a, a real lifer, yeah. But you know, I like them, and I liked um. In fact, I met, lived in a neighbourhood, and there was a pub where bands used to play, and there was a lock-in, and you get Dave Gilmore up, and I, yeah, dig this, I actually helped the Pretty Things out, who lived around this way once when I was short of a bass player, and their drummer was Ryan Holiday, so there's an American guy sitting in with them, who had the most luxuriant moustache I've ever seen, and I played with him. Richie Hayward from Little Feet. Oh, wow. And another time, a guy got and played keyboards, and it was Vincent Crane. Wow. Oh, damn. Oh, my God. So, great, great pub. Wow. It was good. And, yeah, funny thing, neighbors are locking. I came out about four o'clock in the morning once. 
And it's right by the canal, and there's a little old-fashioned bridge over the canal. And there you go. And I'm a bit wasted. I've come out. And I thought, oh, that's great. You know, it was a little bit too far to walk back to where I used to live at that time in the morning. I had a few. I thought, that's great. It's a minicab. So I get in it. It was a police car. They took me straight down there, a road police station, and I spent the night in there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Hello, Gwen. They said, "Not you again." <laughs> right, right. <laughs> when you um you mentioned David Gilmore, I I don't know where I saw this, but it it was a video of you telling the funniest story of David Gilmore explaining the Sex pistol to, uh, uh, to somebody. Can you can you recount that? Do you remember this? No, I don't think I do. You sure Basically, it yes, it it was um somehow you you were at a party or something and, and David Gilmore was there. I think you played together maybe. And, and David w- w- was telling a mutual friend, uh, a- a- an older woman. Oh yeah. Glenn was in a band um, called the sex pistols and they wore a shirt of my band, but they wrote, I hate over the top of it. Oh, right. Yeah. I just I thought it was the funniest I story. I remember that story, but I know they had an <laughs> I know they had an exhibition of all the uh, of, um, Pink Floyd paraphernalia at the V&A, which is quite a big deal thing. And um, I went along to the opening night because okay. I'm getting breaks with things like that and I was wandering through it. And they, they had a mock-up of that T-shirt. Yeah, wow. So they was quite proud of it. That's great. Yeah. Well, and that's like, you but, know... But I, I, I did do one show um, that this place, this guy has got a really nice house in... Norfolk, and in the afternoon they have like a literary festival, and that band's playing in the evening. And I was one of the bands one night. Then during the day they had um, loads of different people. John Hurt had written a book, and he he was there. And um, Sad, uh, Sally, Dave Gilmore's wife, had given a speech about some books she writes, and it was my birthday on the stroke of midnight, and. Um, I got went about back to the main dining room in this big house where everybody was hanging out. They brought a surprise cake, right? And there was no knife. So somebody went off to the, get a big kind of cake knife. And Dave Gilmore was there, and he sort of, to fill in time, he started engaging me in conversation. He said, how old are you, Glenn? I said, well, it's midnight now. I'm 59. He went, oh, I thought you was older. I said, well, that's nice, isn't it? He said, no. He said, I didn't mean it like that. It's just when you're 60, you get um, you get a free travel pass. And I said, is that like a freedom pass where you can get on the trains? He said, no, that's when you're 65. But if you write off, you can apply for an Oyster card and it gives you free travel in London on the on the trains and the the um, the buses. I'm like, oh, that's nice. Well, I'll have to wait here for that. I said, hang on a second, Dave. I think we better leave it there. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I'm supposed, supposed to be a leaning proponent of punk and you of psychedelia. And if anybody could hear us talking about free travel passes, they wouldn't believe us. <laughs> he went, yeah, I said what you mean. But he was right. Like, but I think, <laughs> you know, when you reach my age and his age, it's kind of like a badge of honour to get that far, you know. <laughs> yeah. But he's a good lad. He used to live there. I used to see him in the pub and all. So. Okay. It's kind of cool. Not anymore, but yeah. yeah. I love thinking about the guy from Pink Floyd worrying about saving that extra few bucks every time he goes on the subway. Yeah, but it's a badge of honor. <laughs> it definitely is. It is, and it's Andy, you know. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, it, and who you doesn't like free? Sometimes I, sometimes I go in the West End of London. You do something. You get some food to bring back, and then you think, "Oh, I forgot to get some vegetables." Then, like, I live about seven or eight stops from the middle of town. And I know that there's a, quite a good supermarket. One more stop before I have to get out. And before I had a free pass, you would have to get out, pay, and then buy another ticket to go one more stop. But I don't now. And sometimes I just get out just because I can and maybe buy some peas <laughs> or broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> It's the little things. Very rock and roll, but there you go. I don't call. I like that British rock legends are so uh, public transit forward. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very, no, it's very refreshing. We get about. <laughs> um, I don't know if you guys hit this the last time, but can, can we talk a bit about the vicious white kids? Oh, we didn't talk about it last time. You didn't. Okay. Tell us, um, it seemed like you had a pretty good relationship with, with Sid after everything kind of cleared. Um, no, I think we were both in the same boat, you know. Right. The pistols, he was out of pistols, I was out of pistols. We were neighbors. We were sitting in the pub. And he said, Sid said to me, yeah, Glenn, you know, it's a bit weird. And everybody thinks we're enemies and there we are sitting together. What can we do about it? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, to prove that we're not enemies. And I said, I haven't really thought about it. Oh, we could do a gig for a laugh. And he went, yeah, all right. Um, who's going to do what? I said, well, maybe you can get rats gabies in and get Steve out of the rich kids. He went, yeah, that's a good idea. Who's going to play bass? I said, Sid, let's put it this way. I'm certainly not going to sing. He said, well, who's going to sing? I said, how about you sing and I play bass? He went, oh, I'll get it. Anyway, we put the word out. We had a, did a few rehearsals, just like all covers and things. Did a gig and we called it the Vicious White Kids because it was Sid Vicious. Me and Steve were from the Rich Kids and Rat had fallen out with the band at that stage and he had a side band called the White Cat. So... That's what it was all about. But we did a gig. It was great. It was wow. really good. There was a big wheel in the music industry over it called Rob Dickens. And he signed me to Warner Chapel Publishing and he got the pistols to sign. And then he became head of WA in Europe and all that. And I went to see him about some project. And he went, well, it's all right. And he said, but it's not the best thing you've ever done. In the, I said, well, what do you think the best thing I've ever done? The pistols, I suppose. And he went, well, no, actually. I said, what then? He said, the vicious white kids. I said, what do you mean? He said, that was so exciting. I said, well, why didn't you sign us up? He said, he was all too out of it. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, that, that's what I was going to ask. Like, was there like a big fervor around the band? Like, obviously, it, it is a super group. No, it was, we just did one gig for a laugh. And then, much to my chagrin, the money came around the gig. We did quite well. I can't remember how much it was, but we did a sold out gig in a place that hold a couple of thousand people. Although that was in like 1979 or whenever, um, you know, there's probably a couple of grand tape. And I haven't had a bit too much to drink. And Sid was going to America a couple of days later. I said, can't just give the money to Sid. Right. So he went off. But the thing was, he turned up in New York, and I didn't realise that Malcolm hadn't been paying him because he didn't want him to have any money because you know what. I didn't realise that. Sid turns up in New York with two grand in his pocket. And and all the pushes and all that turned out like they was around him like flies around shit, you know. So Yeah. Yeah. Mm. There you go. Was there uh, any plans for you to do any other bands in the interim before you did the Rich Kids after the Pistols? Like, were you... Where's... No, no, I sort of, I, um, that was the, I, I sort of half start when I realised it wasn't working out, I was friends with this guy called Mike Thorne, who was um, the A&R guy for the Pistols at EMI, and also wanted to become a record producer, and did well, and did very well, and his main claim to fame is he produced um, tainted love by soft cell, but he's done loads of other things and he's a good lad. But he knew that me and John weren't getting on and I wasn't getting on with a bam. And he called me up and he said, can we go for a curry? And I said, well, who's buying? And he said, well, yeah, mate. So I get there and uh, he said, um, you know, speaking as a friend and as an employee of EMI, we realise there's a problem in the band. And speaking as a friend... And an employee of AMI, we hope you sort it out. But also speaking as a friend and an employee of AMI, we see you as the main tunesmith in the band. And if it doesn't work out, we'll be more than interested in anything you come up with, right? I've just turned 20. I'm getting a load of shit from the other guys in the band. Uh, well, mainly John, but not being backed up by Steve and Paul. And there's quite a good expression, you know, more trouble than it's worth, which it became. And I didn't think Rush decided to AMI, but I thought, if they think that, other record companies would do. So when it didn't work out, that's what I did, you know, and I sort of already 
been mates with Steve New because he'd come down to a Pistols a couple of rehearsals when we was thinking about having a second guitarist and I met Rusty. And, you know, so I walked straight into that. And even a song like Rich Kids, the actual single, it could have been a Pistol song, you know. Mm. Really, maybe not the words, but the, the chord changes and the, the tune. So I'd, I already had that one up, I sleep. Wow. Mm. Um, you mentioned Rat Scabies earlier. Tell us about Dead Horse. What was that? Oh, Dead Horse. Cool. What don't you know? Um, <laughs> That's why I got John here, because he's, he, he's the ace in the deck. I've never well, had, heard Dead Horse, so I, I don't know what it sounded like. Well, some of it was all right. Um, it didn't really do a lot, really. Rat had a, he took on the lease on a recording studio. It was a proper recording studio, actually underneath Kew Bridge in London. Oh, wow. Right? You know, in the, the bulwark of, of Kew Bridge. And we put some stuff down there. Um, M, uh, um, me. And it's like 96, uh, is that correct? Uh, maybe around then, Darwood from Generation X and Gary Twin. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of all right, you know, but everybody always has. Thing is, you get something going with people of your age group, but they're also in other bands and nobody's quite sure if it's good. Right. Nobody's yeah. quite sure if I'm going to commit to it. I get a phone call from Udra Miflip when there's a few Bob involved and you know, it's really hard to kind of keep things together. So there's a practicality in rock and roll that's, yeah. you know, gets lost on the, the fans. You know, why didn't you do this? Well, it, you know, Fred's mum was ill. You know, it's... Right. It can be as simple as that sometimes. But, yeah, it was good. And they were great guys. Rats, a great drummer. Although, mind you, I do remember we was jamming something and Rat did this fantastic drum fill. Blah, blah, blah. But then came back in, not on the one, but like two and a half. And it yeah, all yeah. fell apart. And he went, Glenn, he said, I ate, I, I ate it when you can't follow me, when I go wrong like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you've played with like so many legendary front people and legendary drummers too, like Ratscabies a couple of times, Clem Burke a couple of times. Like who are some of your favorite people to play with over the years? Like who have been some of your favorite in different positions? Oh, I don't know. It's kind of horses for courses, really. You know, people say, who's the best guitarist in the world? Who's the best drummer in the world? There isn't any such thing. It's it's who is right for that particular thing. You know, Clem's right for Blondie and loads of other things. My last album, I had Slim Jim Phantom on it because I wanted to make a rockabilly-ish album, and Slim Jim's great at that. You know, he's pretty generally good drummer anyway. Faces, it was great to play with... Um, Kenny Jones is great for the faces and good for the who and loads of other things. Bloke I've got playing with me, Chris Musto is good. But you know, nobody would know who is a good drummer. But many years ago, I played for Mick Jones when he was trying to form The Clash. And we had our own Pistols rehearsal place and we let him rehearse there. I played bass, Steve Jones played drums, and he, Mick, well, Mick was checking out Chrissy Irons as a potential singer, and we jammed a bit, and Steve got behind the kit, and he goes, and he can't do all that bit, but he plays drums like the big guy, I don't know, it's, I, I don't know if this is a family in order, but he sits there and he plays like the right cunt, and it sounded great. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, I guess in terms of lead singers, then, right? Like, because you played with Bobby Gillespie. Oh, don't, put, don't put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. We can leave it at that. The answer is Mick. The answer is Mick Hucknall. Mick's great. I think he's great. Yeah, he is. Well, that's the other thing I want. Like, you know, everywhere you played, inspired like that first run of shows on the anarchy tour bands form in the wake and that famous 
show in Manchester, I think before the Anarchy Tour, where Mick Hutnell's in the audience, Joy Division's in the audience, uh, yeah. Buzzcocks are putting it on. You know, like it really it is like the 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 sprouting of a flower. Yeah, the, the lesser free trade hall that was in Manchester. Yeah, 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 yeah that was cool. But you know, like when I was rehearsing with Blondie, um. We was rehearsing, and the sound guy in the big rehearsal room said, "Is everything right, Glenn?" I said, "Well, can you turn Debbie up a bit?" And he said, "He said, well, it's pretty loud, can't you?" I said, "No, I just like it. Can you turn it up a bit more?" She's good. Yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely, unbelievable. Anyway, lads, look, this... my son is actually doing a gig tonight, Ooh. and I'm going to go and support him. I'll make sure awesome. he doesn't put a pint of beer on top of my amp that I've lent him and try it. So I'm going to get ready to go and do that. I've enjoyed talking with you. I'm glad you're starting to pick up on the record, which um, I'm pleased with. Um, and there's more where that came from. I just need a, bit, a little bit more kind of playing the radio, and then I can make another one. You know, so that's how it works. Well, anytime you want to come back to talk to John and I, or just John, I'll just sit shotgun <laughs> next time and just watch you and John talk. Please know, Glenn, All you're right. always welcome. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank appreciate you, Glenn. It. Thank you, Damien. All right. See you later.